You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Is oil ready for another run higher or is the path of least resistance lower? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Warren Pies, co-founder and strategist at 314 Research. Hi, Warren. It's great to have you back on. Great to be back. A little bit of a break, but excited to be yeah, back. Yeah, I know. We're taking care of business, right? We know everyone was slammed this summer. It didn't feel like a very restful summer at all. And we're just kind of gearing up to slam into September. And it feels like it's a really critical juncture. And I think if you just look at the kind of um, you know stories that were dominating today and, and some of the trade we saw is really the two E's once again, right? Energy and equities. So let's kick off with stocks since we're just coming into the close here in the US and it's an ugly one. We saw stocks rally at the start of the day and then they just kind of rolled over here at the end and we're going out pretty close to the lows. It looks like not quite at the lows, but we've got the S&P down a, percent, a little over a percent, the NASDAQ down 1.3%. Um, and we're heading into a long weekend, so a uh, holiday weekend here, bank holiday here in the U.S. So um, maybe not surprising, but you know, what what is this sort of telling you? What do you make of the action we saw today? Well, I, I think any one day you have to kind of step back and look at what's happened in a kind of a bigger context because it doesn't happen in a vacuum, really. I mean, number one, we're Friday heading into a long weekend, and so conventional wisdom tells you that position people don't want to be long because only really bad things can happen over this long weekend so there's that in the very short term we had the uh the jobs number today 315,000 new jobs and uh, i think that the conventional wisdom again coming into the day was that anything above 300 is kind of a negative thing anything below 300 is a, a positive thing because we're kind of the conventional wisdom is that we're entering into this bad news is good news and vice versa kind of regime for the markets. Uh, I think the, the, the release was actually a lot more nuanced than that. Uh, you know, we saw uh, labor participation rate up, uh, unemployment rate up because of that. And uh, hours worked trending lower, which some people are pointing to as kind of a precursor to layoffs. So I think there's a little bit in, in this report for everybody. And ultimately, though, I think you just zoom out and see the price action that we've had the last few days. We we bounce off of the the 4300 level on the upside and everyone's looking at this and wondering will this be a bear market rally and so that means we would breach the uh, the post the June lows 
Mm-hmm. Or are we uh, starting a new uptrend here? I think that's the question. And I think that's what today's price action has to be viewed in that context versus just in a vacuum today with the data today. Yeah. Do you, do you have an opinion on 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 which one looks more likely or, you know, has the greatest probability? Yeah. So I think that gun to my head that we are going to revisit and probably break through the old lows. Um, just a, a couple quick stats that we've been giving to our clients. Number one, we did this whole analysis on bear market rallies. Uh, and there's a lot of ways to do that. And everyone was doing that here a few weeks ago. The one that the, the study that sticks out to me is we looked at 20% drawdowns in the S&P 500 that were then followed by a 10% rally. And we have a chart on this, uh, Brian. And so this, uh, this chart is basically looking at the average performance for the market when we have a 20% drawdown, 10% rally, and we break out all the cases. There are 15 times this has happened historically going back to 1950 and 10 out of the 15 times the lows were in we are already all, we're not going to go back to the lows however the there are some major caveats that so the, the historic tendency tells us the lows are in however you you've never seen a recession begin in the year following a major market bottom never and the other side of the coin is we see our recession probability model has ticked up to 85%. We're using financial conditions because we think that's where any recession is going to emanate from in this market environment. And so our, you know, I think that's a really tough, that's a really tough uh, ask to say that we bottom and then enter a recession in the next 12 months. I think it's unlikely. Uh, and the other factor is that you, in, out of those major bottoms, historically, the Fed is done raising rates, and obviously they're not done in this case. We saw only one other case where we had a major low in these kinds of situations. That was 1987, where the Fed still hiked rates in the year following. So we're going to have Fed hiking. We're more than likely going to have a recession beginning because I don't think we're in one right now. I was just going to ask you that because that's key to that that stat, right? Because there are some people who think we're already well into a recession. That's a sharp, that's a very sharp pickup on your end because- that's if we're already in the recession and the NBER is going to declare the recession has began way back when, then this bottom looks quite conventional. Uh, when you look at uh, the, basically the, all of the statistics that NBER uses to declare a recession, we ran, we've, we've looked at that. I don't think you can make the case that going back pre-June lows mm. that we can, that we, the recession's in. I know that there are two negative quarters of real GDP, but nominal GDP is really high. And you can go through a litany of other indicators and say, I, so I just don't think the recession is that we're in it yet. I think we're, it's imminent. It's probably late this year, early next year type of event. But that still for this analysis tells us that, you know, we're probably going to need a little more weakness. And then kind of qualitatively, you look at how the Fed's responding to everything. They just they, they want uh, they, they, they want a sell off. They want financial mm-hmm. conditions to, to worsen. They want credit spreads to widen. They want equities to sell off. They, this, is, this is kind of what they need. And they're trying to wring out the excesses in the market. And so it, I'd say short term, uh, we, we think that there's more downside here. And, you know, but at the same time, I think that fair value in the market's about 3,900. That's with discounted earnings through next year. So we 
will be buying if we get back into that 3,600 neighborhood because you're never going to nail the absolute lows. I think you just you have enough margin of safety down there. Yeah. And and that's really true. I mean, every, we talk about this. It is so hard to both pick the bottom and the top, right? We'd all be much better off if we could do that. It's incredibly hard to do. A lot of times it's just luck. Um, you know, it, it strikes me as we're talking about this, Warren, I think every one of these conversations seems to be that we're either going to retest the lows and it's going to be straight line down or or somehow we we come closer, it fails and it rockets higher. Could we just like have this horrible drift sideways? That's actually our base case for a bit Oof. is that we, I think that we're in the process of defining a, a, a kind of trading range right now. And I think that, you know, maybe 3,600 is the, the downside and maybe 4,300 is the upside. And when we break it apart on a valuation basis, like I said, we see 3,900 as a central tendency uh, for fair value in this market. And so you draw a 300 point, 400 point band around that. And you you trade within that as we kind of you know work off a lot of the uncertainty that's out there with regards to earnings, which is really driving the the you know the valuation question is like what's going to happen to exit 2023 earnings and, and we've marked that down somewhat on our end, but uh, there could be more downside or maybe there the soft landing scenario happens and you know the upside is 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 there. So I think that that unfortunately there's a lot of chop that's probably ahead of us for a bit of time. Um, and, and I'd say that chop lasts, if you want me to pretend I have a crystal ball, I think the chop lasts into next spring because what oh. happens at that point in time, maybe next February or March, because what happens at that point in time is we get into these easier comps for CPI data and all of a sudden a path to much lower CPI opens up. And that could be, I think, a, a real bull catalyst to break out of that range. And, and I say like, oh, because that can be just that wears people down and two, two things wears people down. So it's going to be a sentiment angle to that. But also, you know, if you're a longer term investor, so for short term traders or people who have to be in the market, it sounds like they're going to have to be really nimble and, and really kind of size appropriately for a choppy, but maybe volatile market that's swinging around data, data point to data point for longer term investors. Maybe we have to kind of wean ourselves off this idea that you know, you've got to get in there because it's going to be that bottom and you're never going to get another chance. I mean, it sounds like you can afford to be patient if you're chopping sideways, if you're if you have a longer term horizon. Yeah, I think you need to know your horizon. I mean, that's the number one. Anytime you're in the market, you if you start changing your horizon mid game, you've probably lost already. Uh, if you're a long term investor, we have uh, asset allocation models, for instance, that we run at 314. We just tell for our long-term kind of asset management clients, we say, hey, follow the models and this is what you should do. Uh, for more discretionary capital, we've been bearish basically all year. We did happen to get uh, somewhat lucky, I guess, in have our discretionary clients put about a third of their capital back in on June 16th at the lows. And so that's for kind of our trading uh, accounts and discretionary capital. But there are two separate strategies is the point. Yeah. And you need to know which one you're going to be following uh, with any of your your capital. And uh, yeah. if you start mixing them and matching them in this environment, you could really get chopped up. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. That's a, it's a great, great point, Warren. And, and, and if you're not sure, go over to the Academy. We have a whole section on that. Like know, know what you need and your parameters and what type of investor you're going to be. Um, that's key. That should always be key, but it, it sounds like it, in particular right now in the environment we're going into. You know, um, Warren, you mentioned the soft landing. We saw we saw some action in bonds today too, by the way, that two-year treasury yield backing off the 14-year high. It hit earlier on that kind of nuanced jobs number. And it looked like everybody sort of, it was feeding a little hope into that soft landing scenario. But every time that comes up, so many people point out the Fed has a terrible track record when it comes to doing that. I mean, does that seem like a plausible scenario to you at this point? Do they have a shot at managing a soft landing? I actually think that, you know, I, the the very in vogue thing to say right now is that they, that, you know, soft landing, that's a ridiculous. The Fed doesn't even want a soft landing. There's going to be a growth recession now and all this stuff. I think there is a path to a soft landing. I, I do think the Fed's on the doorstep of a policy mistake, to be totally honest. You see one-year break-evens go from above 6% to down 2% yesterday. That's sending a really important signal. I mean, that's the, the bond market telling us that the next year inflation, the year-ahead inflation is 2%. So we, they think there's a path to get back to 2% CPI. And when we start breaking the numbers apart, it's not necessarily the base case, but I see a path, a realistic path. It's heavily dependent on oil doing the, the right thing. And what in another part of it would be how much of this post-pandemic spike in car prices do we give back? If you get a couple of those things to break the right way, we could be back to much lower CPI levels because those things go from being positive, major positive um, headwinds to CPI to drags. You get negative year over year prints. That feeds into CPI. That is one way to get, you know, housing inflation is already baked in for next year. But that's how you get to a, a, a path to, you know, a two handle on CPI. And I think that I don't see anyone talking about that. We're, yeah. we're starting to look at it and talk about it at 314. And I think that is the uh, that's the scenario you need to open your mind to. I'm not ready to say declare that as the base case. There's too many other variables out there, but I can see a path there. And I don't believe it's being fully discounted in the market yet. And that's what you want to watch out for. You want to watch out for what's not priced in at all. That's that's where you're going to be most vulnerable. I, I want to encourage everyone to look. I went down the rabbit hole the other day, uh, Fed guy on his blog, and um, he, he one of them is really interesting on the different mechanisms the Fed has now to reach into the real economy where they never did before. It was always through commercial banks and it was very kind of lengthy process with a lag, but the sort of, you know, COVID response gave them an opportunity to, to reach more directly into the real economy. And his suggestion was that they, they, they have more nuanced tools now than they ever did before. So they can kind of bring out the sort of asset market or wherever they want to tighten, but at the same time, you know, prop up a little bit the real economy, which again, I think gives some credence to the idea that maybe just maybe they can do a soft landing. So I encourage you all to go check that out. I'll try to find it and tweet it out after the show if I can. So let's, let's dig into energy because that was the other E we mentioned. And we, and we asked this question at the top of the show because it's what we've been really thinking about hard too, is what is the situation with oil? 
And it's so important because we've been seeing the consumer, the U.S. consumer hold up and everything you hear and what you see in the confidence reports of the last few releases are that it's lower gas prices that are making everyone feel better, prompting them to go out there and spend a little bit. And that's so important for the economy. Where are we with energy prices? Because it seems like it's going to be really depend on this push and pull between supply and demand. Right. And and oil is kind of, we've made the point more or less all year that oil is driving everything in the markets at this point in time. I mean, we just talk about one-year break-evens. One-year break-evens and oil have been so tightly correlated this year. So yeah, break-evens, the the counterpoint to what I just went on and said is, yeah, break-evens have collapsed here, but so has oil. So if oil comes back, I mean, it's hard to build the foundation of a bull market on low oil prices when you're in the middle of a a, uh, energy crisis, more or less. And so that's where I think you have to be overweight energy stocks, number one. I, the, the reason we're saying that is because it's, number one, we think it's a sec, we're entering into a secular bull market for, for oil and energy. Uh, number two, it's the only sector, when you run a correlation matrix of all the sectors in the market against each other, energy sector's got a negative correlation to every other sector, and there are no other, two other sectors with a negative correlation. And again, that was the price action we saw today, energy up, only sector up in the yeah. market. Um, and so, and, and finally, I think we get a re-rating based off of all that. I think we get a re-rating of energy valuations higher. This is a multi-year story. So we want to be overweight energy. It's a hedge. It's a diversifier. I mean, you're not getting a diversification from bonds or really anything else right now. So you got to be overweight energy if you have if you want to express any kind of positive view on the equity markets. So I, just to be clear, overweight energy equities. Equities, right. That's, and all energy or oil well, I think that if you're if you're looking at it, you want to say just if you want to just buy the XLE, that's fine with me. I think you'll you're really mainly going to buy. You're getting you know some integrated exposure there, Exxon, Chevron, more or less, and I'm fine with that. I think integrateds are are well positioned in this environment. I don't want to go buy refiners right here. I'm not ready to buy oil field services either, even though they could rip. Um, oil, refiners are not an oil beta play. I want an oil beta play. That's what you. That's what you need here. And so, the other place, and you and I have spoken about this before. I believe is we've been recommending for a long time Canadian large cap Canadian energy. I think yes. that's been the, that is the winner coming out of this. I think that uh, you're going to see those stocks really separate themselves. The earnings reports have been amazing, and I, I think that you know there's much less maintenance capex needed. Base is the short. TLDR on up north, uh, north of the border uh, energy stock. So those are those are. So that's Lena, kind of that answers Lena's question. Do you see better value in the Canadian oil and gas sector than the U.S.? Yeah, I do. Definitely. And and is it again? Can you just buy a broad basket, or do you have to sort of you know navigate around? Yeah, uh, within, in a more can, nuanced way within that. You within can buy a broad, broad basket. Uh, favorite stock in the space is CNQ. Uh, that's basic. I mean, the management team and asset mix there is unparalleled in in our view, and so it's a it's a kind of a safe and boring stock. But I mean, you have enough volatility. Can we like safe and boring something. Right, right compared, now, you're, you're, you're already going to have you're already going to have uh, enough volatility baked into these stocks via oil prices and everything else that could go right or wrong. Yeah. So there's a lot going on with oil. We, 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 we've got OPEC coming up. Let's tackle that one first. That they're meeting on September, OPEC plus meeting on September 5th. We, we 
uh, saw a tweet from Mwango Capital that caught our eye today, which said, even as global oil prices went higher, Nigeria's oil output in Q2 dropped to the lowest level since 2016. July output dropped to 1.2 million barrels a day, the lowest in more than three decades and way below what Nigeria was allowed to pump. There has been this question, Warren, about regardless of what OPEC, OPEC says, what is the reality when it comes to output? Well, that's one of those things where we all know that there's there has been a problem with investment, upstream investment globally in the oil patch. And I think you know, you've had a consistent pattern of OPEC nations not hitting their quotas during this production increase phase that we're kind of out of at this point. And that's led a lot of folks to assume that there's no spare capacity there. Truthfully, when you really dig into those those that analysis, it's a lot of because they didn't hit their production quota, they do not have spare capacity. Unfortunately, that doesn't pass for analysis in my book. So mm-hmm. What we do is we look at rig productivity out of the Middle East and how how hard it is to create those last few barrels. We are seeing some evidence that your rig productivity is going down in the Middle East right now. And so you could conclude that, you know, you're getting to the end of spare capacity. But yeah, I'd say no duh at that. You know, I mean, we know that at this point, the, the last bit of spare capacity in the world is really Saudi Arabia, UAE, and then if Iranian oil comes back, that's it. We're done as far as spare capacity goes, and it's kind of not up for dispute anymore. And so, yeah, I, I think we are we're very razor thin on spare capacity. And so this opens up really a lot of bullish things can happen in this kind of environment. And it wouldn't be surprising to me, given this, to see Saudi Arabia use the Iranian deal, potential Iranian deal, to claw back some of their spare capacity. So maybe they they have a production cut. In order to save face and have, you know, this gives them an excuse to do that. And, uh, you know, so that that's possible, but it would be shocking to me if they did that at basically $95 Brent at this point in time. It would still be shocking to me. I, I think you need lower prices to get them to, to really pull the trigger on that. Yeah. So, you know, what you just described. So it sounds like they're going to maybe just jawbone next week, talk about you know, talk about the market, but not do anything and then see where it goes. They're trying to look ahead like everyone and try to gauge the impact on demand, right? Recession, how much, you know, how, how what, what the band is for prices. And they want, if it's too high, it's going to hurt demand. They want that sweet spot, don't they? Yeah. And, and the thing you've seen, if you look under the covers, you look at OSP spreads, which is what the price, the price the Saudis are charging to different regions in the in the, the world. And OSP spreads, their official selling prices to to every major region are at all time highs. So what you know is that they've abandoned this market share strategy, which has been the way we've all been trained to think of the world post 2014 when they declared war on the U.S. shale industry. It's they're no longer pursuing the market share strategy just because they really have no big spare capacity left. Now they're pursuing a, a price based strategy. They're mm-hmm. pushing up prices via OSPs. And in this environment where the Saudi barrel is that marginal barrel, they have a lot of influence on on pricing via OSPs. So to me, this is a very bullish backdrop. You know, I we've I think there have been some technical factors and, you know, obviously there's a lot of levers being pulled by policymakers at this point in time. But when I step back and think medium, long term, 
what does the physical market look like for me, oil, and then everything that could go wrong, which is good for oil uh, between uh, Russia and Europe. I think you need to be you need to be long oil beta one way or another in this environment. I, I really do. Do you think that? I mean, do you have? Is there a, a a price that you're looking at? I mean, could we see oil back over a hundred again, or is the sort of recession demand threat going to keep us in kind of a lower band for oil? I've been saying I don't think that the recession, the typical recession, is going to would not kill enough demand in order to really knock the price of oil down. And that we've done that analysis and talked about on Real Vision. So I think we're going substantially higher by by year end. And, you know, I don't know what the path looks like to get there, but I think we go higher, uh, you know, call it 125, 130 bucks a barrel by year end. And I think before this cycle's over, the odds are we make new all-time highs. And Wow. That's what I, that's that, it, unless you have a, some kind of saving grace uh, out of the, the Russia Ukraine situation, uh, you know, and I don't see that happening. We've played that out and, and I, I think that um, higher prices are coming. Yeah, that's what I think. Which is going to be painful for drivers again and, you know, can kind of feed into that. That growth story. Um, and interesting, On we, we had some news today. We were sort of all looking at this. Uh, the G7 made an announcement that they plan to basically use the insurance and financing of shipments of oil to try to put a cap on Russian oil prices. In other words, they won't insure or finance shipping the oil unless it's under sold under a certain price. Can they even execute on that? It sounds like it's it, political symbolism. Do they actually have the ability to influence it? It's going to be hard to do yeah. that. Uh, they need to get. They need to get first off. Technically, they they need to get every uh, European Union country to agree to it. And then more difficult than that, in my view, is like you know they have to get China to agree to it and yeah. India too. Yeah, that seems. Yeah, and India is no. There's no slam dunk that India would agree to it, but China is not agreeing to it, in my view. Yeah. Um, you know, they may they might use it as as negotiating leverage with Russia, but let's be honest, Rouse are, are crude, Russian crude oil is trading at $21. I mean, we saw a little bit of the discount open back up after the the news of the price gap, $21 discount to Brent. Um, you know, it was as low as $35, you know, maybe a couple months ago, I think. Mm. Uh it, where are they going to, and we don't know where they would set that price cap either. I mean, there's, there are so many things up in there. It feels more like job owning, like they want yeah. to have a piece of news. Uh, and Russia came back and cut gas flows, of yeah. Nord Stream one. And so I don't know, it just feels like just part of this kind of jostling. Um, and another reason why I just don't see us going back from this thing without, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, potential problems and, and casualties. So Yeah. And, and Gazprom announced that it is not going to reopen Nord Stream uh, as it was, as it was scheduled to this weekend. So that is just a whole nother, you know, world of pain and, and crisis facing Europe. Um, that Absolutely. it's just hard to get, hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. And, and, the technical difficulties was the reason given, but uh, yeah, I I mean this is this is the gamesmanship that's going on right now, and you know I I don't know. It remains to be seen if it, to, that we can really uh, we can. I think that the Western countries can certainly inflict pain, and they have inflicted pain on Russia, 
but they can't force, we haven't been able to get China to be on the same page or India at this point. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that any of anything that I've seen would change that um, uh, from what they said today. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Born, are you watching the US dollar? Yeah, everybody is. Uh, John, <laughs> you have to, right? Jonathan uh, Johnson is asking, can you please talk about the U.S. dollar? Uh, I mean, it's going higher. And our dollar model is basically still pointing higher. We've been, uh, it's been long the dollar all year. And I mean, this is kind of the, what is it? The cleanest dirty shirt kind of thesis. I mean, mm-hmm. it's mainly Euro yen that, you know, you're you're dealing with two, you know, messed up currencies that you're you're paired against. But even against gold, I mean, gold looks good against the euro. Gold looks good against the yen. Uh, it's been it's kind of sucking wind against the dollar, though. So you know that's I think where you really get the the true tell of dollar strength is in that, that dollar gold cross, just the dollar price of gold. And gold has been in this kind of range even after the the, the invasion between 1950 and 1680. It's bouncing towards the low end. It was up today. Uh, so there's kind of a battle going on between gold and the dollar. And I think that's the key tell because the euro is just in a, in a downtrend and the yen is in a downtrend and I don't see anything breaking that in the near term. Stuart, uh, from the RV side is asking, what do you think of Canadian pipelines, uh, such as Enbridge? I don't, I don't know that we, when we were talking before about, you know, being bullish Canada and, and also being bullish equities is pipelines part of that. Yeah. I mean, a rising tide lifts all boats, but that's not really where I'm focused right now. That's not an official recommendation from us. Uh, you should be okay there, but uh, I'm modestly, I'm okay with it, but I'm not in love with it. Let's put it that way. doesn't really accomplish all the goals I laid out for your energy portfolio. Mm. So when we're talking about being overweight energy, uh, what 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 else is part of that portfolio mix? I mean, there's so much uncertainty. Some people have come on and say, listen, ca- I, I like cash, you know, not normally, um, but in this case, especially I understand for, you know, Short-term traders, it's difficult because you're not making any money necessarily, I guess, if you're in cash. But for you know, for people who maybe have a little bit medium to longer term perspective, um, what are you what are you putting on in addition to that energy? Well, it, not to give an academic answer, but what we're recommending, what we've been carving out for our clients is a high quality basket of, of general equities, which mm-hmm. energy is not quality. Quality just very quickly, and I did an interview yesterday with um uh, on the next big trade for Real Vision, uh, where we go more into detail on this. Oh yeah, with Harry. Oh, oh, so yep. fun! You did that. That's yeah, great. Yeah, and so this is the trade we talked about. But quality basically is defined by stocks that have through multi-year periods earnings don't decline uh, very much. And so there's more to it than that. But that's just the, the short end of it. Energy is so cyclical; they'll never be in that quality basket. We want to marry those two things because we see energy uh, entering a bull market, and we've we like quality here. We think this period of time looks very similar to the end of the last tech bull, uh, bust. Mm-hmm. So tech bust around 2000, leading into the next secular bull market in commodities, 2005. From 2000 to 2005, a basket of quality stocks and energy stocks, 90% quality, 10% energy, uh, returned about 15% a year. 
S&P 500 was uh, down 2% per year over that same period of time. So I see a very similar environment. And big part of being successful in investing is to avoid the, the junk that is going to lose you money. And there's a lot of junk that's still deflating right now because we are coming off a mini kind of tech bubble. And you know a lot of the stuff that flourished in a zero interest rate world is not going to work with, uh, with, with Fed funds rate at 3% or higher here. And so, so it's so interesting that you say that, Warren, because when we're when, so this is the this is connecting to the thesis that like earnings matter, balance sheets matter, right? When when you're in this kind of environment, like you go go back to those basic fundamentals, um, but but people tend to think like, oh, tech is bad, but you know, you look at some of these behemoths. Would giant tech companies be able to qualify as quality if they're established? You know, the Googles of the world who you know who are printing money. Um, and the apples and whoever else you want to, I don't know if even we want to say fangs, but do we, do you have to think of them differently if you're thinking at, uh, about it from an earnings perspective, as opposed to grouping them in sort of tech or mega cap tech or. Absolutely. I think you have to make a big distinction between big cap tech and unprofitable tech, um, or even forget the cap size unprofitable tech over in the penalty box. And what we have I believe that Google and we have a 20 stock portfolio of our own kind of quality system that we've created. And I believe I know Apple's in it this month. It's in Google, I believe, is in it, too. We've had Microsoft in there before as well. So, yeah, the the big uh, fang names are often do make it into that portfolio. And I would consider those high quality companies and they fit the bill. Um, Whereas like Tesla has never been in that in that portfolio or, you know, a lot of the kind of over earning tech stocks like Zoom and things like that, they won't make it in uh, either. So you you have to kind of, it's not as easy as just saying quality is a funny thing. Value is very much like, you know, financials, uh, materials, energy, uh, low of all stocks are, you know, utilities, staples, things like that, healthcare. Quality is not, it's a, a more amorphous va- a factor. We like that about it. And it cuts across a lot of the sectors. The one thing it doesn't get is these cyclical sectors like energy though. Yeah. I, I love that actually. I, I, I think that is a great way to think about it. That's going to make sense to a lot of us without getting caught up in some of those other, you know, um, baskets, which I don't know are necessarily going to work or sort of make as much sense in this new environment we're going in. So I love that. So if we put it all together, um, a lot of concern about equities retesting those lows, and we could be messy and sideways and choppy through maybe next spring. So you really need to watch out and protect yourself. Energy still looks good uh, as an overweight, along with these quality names in that environment. And um, we, you know, we need to be careful that even though it's a lot of fun to for everyone to say the Fed doesn't know what they're doing, it is possible that there's a soft landing. So we have to keep that on the radar. Um, but oil prices are going higher. Um, oil prices pretty- are the big, is, it's the wild card for sure. Yeah. And it, right. could, it could knock the whole apple cart over. But if I'm wrong, uh, and oil prices stay down here or go even lower, oh my gosh, that's very bullish for the equity market, broadly speaking. Yeah. Any, um, that's fantastic, Warren. Any, any parting thoughts that you want to leave people as we kind of gear up for September for next week when everybody plugs back in? 
No, I think you just, uh, I think that we're just going to be more of what we saw in the summer coming forward. I, I don't think it's going to be an easy end of the year with midterm elections and, uh, you know, more rate hikes and all this stuff. So it's going to be a, a kind of white knuckle finish. And Yeah, it is. But I think I think that you gave us a really good framework to think about, which is quality, right? Um, you know, know what you're buying and and try to look for quality. I think that's a great framework for us to work off of. Warren, it was such a pleasure to see you again. Same here. Yeah. Have yourself a wonderful holiday weekend. I myself am off to a tiki bar right now, and I hope all of you have a fantastic weekend. We'll see you again soon, Warren. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it, Maggie. Uh, quick uh, programming note: we are off for Monday since the markets are closed in the U.S. Um, I hope you all are too, but we'll be back on Tuesday. I will be back with Tony Greer. So be sure to join us then. Take care, everyone. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.